This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Amelia Lan. She's an attorney in private practice. She specializes in criminal defense and family law cases. She started her own private firm in 2014. During law school or immediately after Amelia, you served as an academic integrity hearing officer for Indiana University? Yes, that was about two years, let's see, two years after law school. I'd stayed home um, with my second child in between that period there. And then when she went off to school, that's when I started working at IU. So what does an academic integrity hearing officer do? So that's the person at Student Ethics. It's now called Student Conduct as of August 2017. So Uh you'll notice different terminology. But They are the person in that office who meets with a student who has been accused of violating the academic integrity code at IU. So it might be plagiarism, it might be cheating on a test, any one of those categories. So the professor's already made his or her accusation and found the student responsible, then their next step is, and that professor can give them maybe a fail, they fail that test or they fail that paper or whatever the professor sanctioned. Then at um, the student ethics office, they have their own sanctions that they can give. And typically they have to take a seminar that the academic integrity hearing officers teach um, a couple times a month. And then if you've done it more than once, though, the sanctions will go up from there. What has been in the news for years now is the big problem, Mm -hmm. sexual assault. Yeah. Now you're getting plenty of business along those lines, I'd assume. Yes, that's one of, I guess I would say I've, my focus of my work is on Title IX is what they would call it, um, the law relating to sexual assault on campus um, and students who are facing an accusation. Or I've also represented students who are making a complaint of sexual assault and want ah. somebody to help them through the process that way. Okay, so both sides. Yes. Either side, whoever gives you a call. Yeah, exactly. Aha! Uh-huh. You always almost, in news reports, hear about women defense attorneys in these cases. Is it optics? That's interesting. Um, I think that the optics are good if you have a woman representing you. Um, I'm not sure if that's, I wouldn't say that's the reason women go into that field, though. I think it might be um, just one factor at play with doing a good job with those kind of cases. Um, But yeah, that's an interesting point. It's true. Um, There's a lot of um, female defense attorneys I know who do this kind of work. And women are involved in a lot of ways because most of the people who work in the student conduct office at IU are women. Mm-hmm. I think there's only one or two men who work there. So it's women all all around are involved. Throughout. Yeah. In this town, there's you doing a lot of this work. There's mm-hmm. also Catherine Lyell mm-hmm. doing this work. Uh, you're one of the two big shots doing that. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say it that way, but, <laughs> but I'll, I'll allow you to. <laughs> now, let me tell you something interesting. Uh, Sunday... Uh, On the 25th, February 25th, there was a story about a former student at Yale University. He was accused of rape uh, of another student Mm -hmm. on Halloween night following a party in 2015. Now, uh, according to the story, here's what the author of the story wrote. He will join the ranks of a small, unusual group, men who are accused of sexual assault on campus 
and who then hear those accusations aired in a court of law. Mm -hmm. Why is that a small group of people? First of all, can I say there's something about Halloween. So many of my sexual huh. assault cases are, involve Halloween. I don't know if it's the costumes or what the situation is. Huh. Maybe people drink heavily on Halloween. I don't know. But but anyway, to answer what you asked me, um, most cases that – so I represent people both accused in the legal system, what I call real court, right. and people accused at IU. Or I've represented people at surrounding universities and colleges as well, not just at IU, but – um, those cases rarely overlap. If there were a Venn diagram, it's pretty rare that they would overlap. And it's there's a couple factors at play. One is the kind of um, evidence that they use in college hearings would never be accepted in real court. Right, right, right. So, like, like the friend of the accuser said, yeah, she told me all about it, and I, I definitely think he did it. Exactly. That's yeah. one thing we come across. I hate to even use the word evidence about the school systems because they don't have rules of evidence the way we have in real court. So, and you know, we even I think lay people know about hearsay, like yeah. what you just mentioned. I told someone, and they told someone, and now yeah. that IU allows that. Um, real court would not allow that. Yeah. Um, and they're also just made for different things. The school system is allowed more. It's built to, they call it an educational process where the idea is people can be heard, let their feelings be known, whether it's to the student they're accusing or they just want to be able to make a statement that the panel hears. Um, that's not what real court's designed for. Right. So I think part of it is just there's different different systems going on. Well, the problem, though, is... Uh that a lot of these accusations uh, under, shall we call it, uh, ultra-liberal uh, rules of evidence and mm -hmm. so forth, uh, if the accused is found guilty, mm -hmm. that stays with him, usually him, yeah. mm -hmm. for the rest of his life. Yes. And um, they call it responsible, not guilty. That's what they call it in the uh -huh. school system, just so you know the the lingo. But um, that's a point I've made many times that I think often falls on deaf ears because people think, well, at school, what's the big deal? If you get suspended or expelled, just go to a new school, something yeah. like that. You're not going to jail. That's kind right. of the, the thinking, I think, of some of the proponents of the school systems. But the problem is, um, especially now when rightfully so, um, sexual assault is being paid a lot of attention and people who come forward to complain about sexual assault are being treated with respect and dignity in ways that they weren't in the past. Um, of course, it's still not perfect, but I think that we're getting a lot more open-mindedness and understanding about what that means to make that kind of complaint. Um, so if you think about it, if you put yourself in the place of an admissions officer at a school or somebody who's hiring for jobs, especially at you know a big corporation, a big business, a law firm, uh, a law school application process, dental school, anything like that, are you going to admit somebody who has on his or her record that they've been found responsible for sexual assault? I don't think so. There would be a liability issue because if the person does it again, yes, then the uh, people can say the university let that guy in. They yes. should have known. Yes, exactly. And um, that never goes away. So yeah. at IU, on your record, let's say you get in trouble for having a joint in your dorm room. Yeah. That goes off your record five years after you leave IU or graduate, whichever happens first. Really? So it is expunged in a manner of speaking. It happens automatically. There's no process. It just happens. If you're suspended or expelled from IU, no matter what the reason is, sexual assault or otherwise, that doesn't go away. It's held indefinitely. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that story that I had brought up uh, said there's no log of how many campus rape cases go to trial each year, but experts and victim advocates agree that the number is vanishingly small. I'm trying to think if I've had even a single one. That went through the uh, criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Maybe one since 2014. Yeah, for those cases, like if there's a Venn diagram, there's no overlap in the circles. I I either do the case in criminal court or I do the case at IU. If a student is accused of rape of another student, Mm -hmm. does the university have to go to the university police to say, this person was accused? They do not. They Um, do not. That's the choice of the complainant, the person making the complaint. Uh, They call it the complainant. Um, Yeah. IU will give that person resources like here's the campus police number, um, uh, the different resources on campus for somebody who's experienced an assault um, or is making a complaint of having experienced an assault. And then if that student does want to contact police, uh, people at IU would help him or her do that. Mm-hmm. Um, or they could just, if they wanted to just call on their own and not have IU's involvement, that's fine too. Um, but IU will not. Is that the same uh, with other uh, misdemeanors and felonies. Uh, let's say that a, a student uh, robbed another student. Mm-hmm. Well, if so, if, if you think about IU students, we have students in the residence halls tend to be the younger students, and yeah. then we have students off campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there's some active crime going on in a residence hall, for example, an RA smells marijuana okay. coming out of a dorm room, or they, uh, you know, student you know, is robbed of his or her laptop and they right. go to the RA and say, um, typically they would call the police in those cases, especially for the the marijuana case. The RA is not going to go alone into a room where they think there's drugs uh, just for safety reasons. Yeah. Um, they'll call the police. But t- typically with sexual assault, um, even if it's in a residence hall, the student's not going to, um, I the cases I've seen and what's typical, I think, is it's not um, what we think of as what Republicans call rape, rape, you know, yeah, like yeah. someone's like, there's a home invasion, someone's screaming for help. That doesn't, that's not the typical campus. Real rape. Cases. Yeah, that's well, what they say. Well, if you want to yeah. sound like a Republican, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's more the girl um, might go to her RA a week later and say, hey, you know, I was sexually assaulted last week. What can I do about that? Um, and then they'll take them over to the student conduct office or have somebody help them from that point. But it's not a case where there's an active crime occurring, if you see what I mean. The student conduct office, no matter if it's marijuana or whatever it is, once it gets to the student conduct office, they're not contacting police. Typically, police have already been contacted before it comes to that point. Now, when the IU police catch wind of some kind of crime, misdemeanor or felony, Uh, Do they automatically then take that stuff over to the county prosecutor? Um, Good question. I don't think that they do. I think they they have their own internal system of, Uh, um, you know, if something meets the basic standards of having some sort of evidence or proof that something happened. I'm not sure what exactly process they go through. I think that the lower level officers will turn that over to higher level officers and then they send it over to the prosecutor's office. I'm not sure exactly. But a decision has to be made, yes or no, yes. to turn it over. Yes. Yeah. Um, Depending on if it's a good case or not. Well, I think the prosecutor is the one who decides if it's a good case. Mm. But, um, you know, if there's absolutely nothing to back up that the cr- a crime occurred, whether it's sexual assault or otherwise, I don't think they'll send it on to the prosecutor's office. I think if it's a questionable area, they might send it on to the prosecutor's office with their recommendation that it not be charged. 
but it ultimately that lies with the prosecutor to decide. Now, here's a case where, you correct me if I'm wrong, you might have represented a person before some kind of university board, as well as criminal courts, because this case eventually went to the criminal courts. Now, this was the case of a fellow named Goping Wang. Yes. Uh, he was a dance coach at Jacob's School. He was accused of trapping a ballet dancer in his office. He, according to the accusation, pulled off her tights and only stopped when he heard someone approaching in the hallway. Now, he was placed on leave of absence while Indiana University investigated it. During this investigation, Indiana University found six other students and staff who accused Wang of forcibly kissing them. What happened was uh, the university didn't report these criminal charges uh, to the police for six weeks until the original accuser insisted they do so. Now, Wang was fired almost immediately after the police report was filed. Uh, he was arrested and charged uh, months later. Critics say that delay in reporting to the police hurt Wang. What happened? I, I am on the side of the critics who say it should have been reported earlier because my thinking is we don't want untrained individuals conducting a police investigation, something that should be conducted by the police because they've already talked to witnesses, talked to uh, people involved in the case, and kind of put their fingers all over it. And then they turn it over to the police who have to try to you know, redo that when it's already been tainted. Mm -hmm. You were quoted in a story as saying uh, these uh, these people who aren't trained like detectives or police officers uh, who are actually doing these investigations on the behalf of the university, you say they don't do it to the same standard and it's muddying the waters. Yes, exactly. The IDS, not long ago, did a three-part series on navigating the student justice system. Uh, they came to you, the reporters did, mm -hmm. uh, to talk a little bit about it. The lawyers, according to this story, which I assume would be you, in its attempts to be sensitive to those who have reported rape, lawyers say, IU has lost sight of fairness to those accused. It's a case where we have student affairs folks who are highly trained and educated to be student affairs individuals trying to essentially recreate the court system um, kind of ad hoc without any legal training, without legal guidance. Yeah, they haven't gone through years and years of training, as did you. Right, and they're not working from, you know, in court, whether it's me, the prosecutor, the judge, whoever, we follow precedent from other cases in our jurisdiction, and we have our laws and the decisions that have been made about those laws by prior courts or higher courts um, that we all rely on to decide how to go forward and how to conduct ourselves. In this case, it's really just they're making it up as they go along and just kind of trying to do the best they can. I, I think they honestly are trying to do the best they can, but you just can't recreate the legal system, right. which has enough flaws of its own as it is. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't think they're successfully doing that. Now, in this uh, series in the IDS, uh, there's a quote from you uh, talking about people who have been accused. You say it's devastating for them. I've seen students who go from being straight A students to getting all C's and D's. I have moms and dads calling me crying. 
My son's not acting like himself anymore. I need help. That's an assumption that these fellas didn't do this stuff. Yeah, it's the assumption we're all supposed to make yeah. as Americans. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, some of, uh, some of my clients, I would wonder along the way, like, huh, what really happened here? But um, the vast majority, I don't think, did do anything wrong that they weren't supposed to do. And that, that buy-in makes it even easier for me to feel outraged on their behalf. And um, at IU, it's unlikely that even an innocent person will actually be found what they call no finding. They don't call it not responsible because that would imply that the complainant wasn't being truthful. So they call it no, no finding. finding. Yeah. Well, now, hold on a second here. You're telling me then that there's a problem with people making accusations unfounded. Well, I don't have a problem with the accusation itself because that has to be the starting place of the process. Um, but my problem is when the person who's being accused that the accusation is made against isn't given the presumption of innocence and isn't treated fairly throughout the process. That's where I have an issue with it. Yeah, yeah. And I also want to say, um, just I always try to say this every time I talk about sexual assault, um, you know, we're in the Me Too movement, yep. and um, we have more awareness of the idea of believing somebody who comes forward rather than rejecting it or saying, well, what were you wearing? What did you think was going to happen? That kind of old. And your past. Right. Yeah. That old sexist way of thinking that we all hopefully all are rejecting at this point. Right. And I want to say my point is not disbelieve a victim or assume somebody's lying if they come forward, but don't automatically assume that because a complaint is made, therefore rape did take place. Right. Right. The majority of my cases where my client is innocent, it's not because the complainant is lying or just fabricating something out of thin air. Um, that's what, you know, the people like to say it's a two to eight percent range of false accusations. That's not the majority of my cases. What They're what I would call unfounded accusations, where maybe something did happen that the complainant didn't like. She felt disrespected or somehow it was an icky experience for her. Some of us think of the um, Aziz Ansari story as an example right. of that, what some of us would call like a bad date or yeah. a bad night, but not a rape. Um, and so I call that an unfounded accusation. It doesn't rise to the level of being a code violation or a violation of the law, but it wasn't a great experience for her either. That's that's more typical of my cases. Now, we know that uh, young men who come to Indiana University in the various orientation processes are told, basically, here's what rape and sexual assault are. Mm -hmm. Are young women told that's what it is too? Well, as far as I know, they do all their orientations together. They uh -huh. all get the same information. It's more, <clears throat> they do a lot of focus on what consent is. Yeah. They have like a skit with the song, as I believe, unless they've discontinued that. Um, part of my issue with that is they actually are not accurately teaching what consent is. And to be fair, consent at IU and consent by the state of Indiana, those are two different things. So, but the university has the right to make that different standard. Yes, because, okay. you know, they're not making a new law. They're just making a, a regulation for their school. For so their own school in that little island yes. of existence. Yes, and that's certainly their right to do that. Um, and actually, they have to, under Title IX, they have to have rules relating to sexual assault. Right. Um, but the issue is people are getting a, a an incorrect sense of what consent is. And, you know, we have cases where basically... Well, like a girl will say, 
Um, well, I didn't say no, but I didn't really want to. Uh-huh. And I, I'm left thinking, well, did you convey that to him in some way? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so because of the kind of liberal definition of consent that's used at IU, they end up thinking, well, therefore I was sexually assaulted. Amelia, why you? It's funny when I um, when I talk to you know friends from high school, or whatever I say, I, no one grows up and thinks I'm going to be the rape lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> you know that it's not like when I was six, I you know at school career day, I said, hey, I'm going to grow up and be a rape lawyer. Um, but it's interesting. I, I think it's just a sense of uh, it's a matter of timing and kind of the way things happen. So it was in around 2014 that I was thinking you know, I wanted more flexibility in my job and I wanted to really be using my law degree because I had passed the bar, but I wasn't working as an attorney. And I reached out to Catherine Lyle, who you mentioned. Uh Um, She's a family friend. And I said, you know, um, I want to go into being a lawyer. Like, do you want an associate? And she said, no, I don't. You should start your own firm and I'm going to help you. And so she was, is my mentor and she really like showed me the way of how to start my own law firm. I rent office space from her. So we're right there across the hall from each other. And um, it just so happened that I knew a lot about the IU process, having worked there, and yeah. most lawyers don't, part, partly because I think the IU system is so different than real court. You know, they don't have continuances, for example. Um, so, like, in real court, you could say, you know, we don't have enough discovery to need to have a hearing today or whatever the situation is. My kid's sick or anything that might come up, and you can just push the hearing out another month. So the hearing... February 26th, you better be there or not, because there's no way it's going to be another day. Right, right. Like at wow. IU, they, um, they'll move it if there's some extreme situation. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I've asked for sexual assault hearings to be moved before, and they say no. And they just set them whatever they want to. You know, like in real court, they'll say, like, I have a trial right now set for April 9th. We set it at April 9th a long time ago. If something comes up, we'll move it. We'll all agree, like, hey, that's not a great date. Let's move it. Or if I had a family emergency or something like that, we would move it. But at IU, they don't set it until about a week before it takes place. So you can't have it on your calendar. You're not planning for it. Just all of a sudden, guess what? Sexual assault hearing. So one weekend, I had three hearings in one weekend. The hearings take place on weekends. So I had Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, um, three different clients, three different hearings. Yikes, did you get any sleep? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. So a lot of lawyers don't like IU system. The other thing that's really difficult... Um, well, you don't like the system. Don't like working in the system, I guess I'll say. I like working with the system. It's something I know about. I feel like I like yeah. the people who work there. It's easy to work. You know, I understand the system. And- but if you were drawing it up, you'd draw it up a little differently. Well, I would not have universities do hearings for sexual assault at all. What I would do, and I've said this in past interviews, but I think schools are uniquely situated to help people who have made an accusation of sexual assault in a way that the courts and police officers and prosecutors cannot. For example, if I come to my RA um, and say, I, I was sexually assaulted last week, this guy's in my finite class, I have to see him every day. IU can move those people so they're not in the same class. They'll move the respondent first unless the complainant would like to be the one moved. Otherwise, they move the respondent. So she could say, I don't want him in my dorm. I don't want to see him at mealtime or whatever the case may be. Or if the girl says, um, you know, I'm so distraught about this, but I have a a final on Friday, the school will contact the professor and say, 
explain a little bit about what's going on and ask if she can have an extension of time on that. You know, the police cannot do that. The prosecutors can't do that. But the school is uniquely situated to help somebody with that. But I think let's leave the adjudication to the courts. Whenever there's an accusation, it should go to the prosecutor. That's what, yeah, that's exactly what I think. Yeah. That's serious stuff now. Now you're not just talking about you're suspended or you're getting kicked out of school. You're talking about could be jail. Yeah, except in the majority of these cases, the prosecutor would look at it and say, I'm not charging this. There's no evidence. Uh-huh. There's conflicting stories. I thought it was interesting in that the Yale story that you were talking about in the New York Times, um, one of the victim's advocates was saying, well, the complainants don't want to go um, have to be questioned because their credibility is put into question. And it's like, yes, it should be put into question. You're making an accusation against somebody and it relies on your credibility. Why wouldn't your credibility be questioned? Yeah, yeah. Because it's an adversarial system. Well, yeah. And if we're trying to figure out the truth, then the person, it matters that the person's credible who's making an accusation. Are you a truth teller? Right. Yeah. And is is your story likely true? You know, by talking to witnesses and looking at circumstantial evidence, that kind of thing. Delving back into who you are yes. again. Uh, I noticed that uh, as an undergrad here at IU, you studied Italian. I did. Um, I love language. I took, I went to Bloomington Montessori School and we uh-huh. studied French. In middle school, I did Spanish. And then I also did Latin and Spanish when I was in um, high school. And I wanted a language um, that wasn't offered at North. I went to Bloomington High School North. So I went over to IU and took classes in Italian a couple times a week. So by the time I was ready to start IU, I actually had sophomore standing because I had taken so many Italian classes. So I thought, hey, why not stick with Italian? And I just really love. And I did German for a while at IU as well. Okay. But at some certain point, you said, now I think I'm going to be a lawyer. When was that point? Well, um, You could say that point was I had my daughter, Monet, who just turned 13. I had her when I was a junior at IU. And I thought, wow, I guess I need a job where I can support myself and not just go, you know, around boats in Sardinia or whatever. I need to actually get a real job where I can support myself because my plan had been to kind of like, let's see how it goes, like maybe be a Italian teacher in high school or who knows. But um, and then I have a family history of being in law. My mom's an attorney. My dad's a paralegal. My mom actually had my bassinet at Ferguson and Ferguson Law Firm when I was a baby. Um, (laughs) And and by the way, if I if I may say, speaking of big shots, (laughs) Carol Seaman, your mother, yes, is a big shot at the Cook Group. She's the vice president, global chief ethics and compliance officer. Yes. And I always say she's a big shot. She's very humble and disagrees, but that's (laughs) what I say. But um, you know, I was raised by an attorney, as you just said. And yeah. so we had very much, um, we talked about law around the dinner table. Um, we had all these philosophical discussions about right and wrong and what processes should be followed in given situations. And, um, you know, compliance officer, we had a lot of rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I do think that that really did help focus my decision. And um, she de- didn't make any secret of that. Um, it's hard to practice law and it's a demanding job. And I, so I knew that going into it. Um, but I, I just think it's so interesting. And I, I love reading and writing. Those are two of my favorite things. Yeah. And arguing with people. That, so that's I thought, about it, isn't what it? better yeah. field where I can combine all those things? Amelia Lan, attorney, 
Thanks for joining us on Big Talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really interesting. Thank you.